and we are in Acts chapter 13, I will let you know that I do not have the verses or most, most of the verses on the screen. So if you want to follow along uh, and you don't have a Bible, um, there's some in the back. So you could grab one right now, Acts chapter 13. If you have a Bible but you don't have it with you, we will assume you have memorized it all. I get a laugh every couple of months when I say that. We are in Acts chapter 13. It is, it is our hope and our prayer that we have, as a church, grown much in love with God and in deeper gratitude and affection for Jesus through our study of the atonement. Um, we spent five weeks in that study, and I, I truly hope you were, hope you were blessed by it. I, I believe um, that as time goes on, particularly in this postmodern culture, the atonement will be one of the main objections, one of the main rejections of Christianity. So I think it was good as a church to go through and see exactly what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross uh, 2,000 years ago. That study will help us, I'm sure, in the future. But as is custom of our church, we head back to our study in the book, in the book of Acts. We will continue through Acts until we get to the summer, take a break, and finish uh, up in the fall. As long as I am the teaching pastor and all the other elder pastors feel the same way. This will be the majority of the way through books of the Bible that we worship God through the Word of God. Just a great way to know your Bible, keep things in its context, uh, as a better opportunity to get the right interpretation of Scripture. Remember, folks, there's only one interpretation of Scripture. Many applications, one interpretation. Not saying we get it right all the time. I don't think anybody does, but we try. Um, what was God saying? What was the author writing on the inspiration of the scripture uh, at that time? And then we bring it to application today. So um, what I'd like to do this morning, though, is spend a few minutes, a little longer than usual in the introduction. I've been trying to cut that down, uh, but not today, because what I want to do is I want to take a jet tour, walk through Acts chapter 1 through 12, and I hope that it will help us get our heads wrapped around the context of the book and the purpose of the book and to bring everybody up to speed. It's been six weeks since we looked at it, which include the five-week series and Easter, of course. And um, you can go online, you can download any sermon you want, and again, podcast or watch the video. But I I thought it would be good to do that this morning. So just bring everybody up to speed. Let me begin by reminding you that the book of Acts is really volume two, and that's important, of one book. Volume two of one book. Dr. Luke, the beloved physician, as the Apostle Paul would say, also wrote the gospel according to Luke. Acts is the sequel to that book. Luke 1 tells us that this doctor, uh, uh, this physician, Luke, carefully researched his material. He, He interviewed eyewitnesses and wrote down what took place during the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus so that this man named Theophilus, lover of God, might have an accurate and orderly account of all that took place. So, so the gospel are the things that be, Jesus began to teach, began to do, his ministry on earth until his ascension into heaven. The second volume, Acts, written by the same author, is the account of Jesus, what Jesus continues to do. And sometimes we look at Acts and we separate that Luke wrote that gospel. It's a continuation. So a lot of time we're looking for interpretation. What does Luke mean by that? Sometimes we just go back to the gospel according to Luke and see what Luke means. He's the same guy. He's the same author. So Luke is writing in Acts all that Jesus continues to do, continually doing through the power of his spirit, through the work of the apostles and the church. Some people call this the, the Acts of the Apostles. They 
Um, that's not really the name of it, but they, they, they put that name on it. Some people call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a little more accurate. But really, it's the Acts of the Living Christ, the reigning Lord, King Jesus, as he continues in ministry through his, the power of his Spirit, his church, uh, to love, to forgive, and redeem fallen human beings, us. Acts is about mission. Spirit-empowered mission. The witness and the retelling of the narrative of the story that Jesus is God who became man. He lived the perfect life, fulfilled the law by perfect obedience to it. He went to the cross, died for our sins. He's our savior. He's our substitute. He took the wrath we deserve. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead, not resuscitated, he actually rose, a resurrected body. He saw, he was witnessed by over 500 people for 40 days. Luke tells us in, in Acts 1 that the resurrected appearances was solid proof that he did really rise from the grave. 40 days, he ministered. And then, 10 days later, in the day of Pentecost, Jesus ascends to the heaven. And he tells his disciples, don't launch into ministry yet. Don't be my witnesses yet. Wait, go to Jerusalem. Wait, because you will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will come. He will come in power. And when he comes, he says, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's hometown. Judea, outside uh, the scope of their community. And then into Samaria, further. And then, of course, to the rest of the world. Starting in your home, community, your village, your state, and to all the nations. And they obeyed. They waited, just as Jesus promised. He sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They were baptized and empowered to live on mission, to be witnesses to Jesus, to the world. And they started in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and now we're at the place of the rest of the world. And then we know also that in the beginning of Acts that as God empowered these disciples to be witnesses of Jesus, persecution came. They were persecuted. First they were warned, then they were persecuted, then they were beaten, Beating, they got beaten, and then we know that it led to murder. Stephen was murdered in Acts chapter 7. And under the sovereign hand of God, under his good providences, Stephen's death led to the scattering of the saints. They were in Jerusalem, and then during the persecution, all, many of the disciples, except the apostles, fled Jerusalem into the outer cities, into the outer communities. The Bible says, gospelizing the gospel. We talked about that. Not just curaso means to preach, but they were laleo, they were, they were evangelizing, which means conversations, talking about Jesus, not just on a pulpit preaching, but they were having everyday conversations and pointing people to Jesus Christ. They were witnessing about his life in the new places that they found themselves since they fled Jerusalem and their new communities, and they began to telling people about Jesus. We saw that in Samaria, the Holy Spirit fell upon the people there, if you remember. Acts chapter 7, chapter 8, excuse me. Um, yeah, nope, no, well, let's go back here. Chapter 9, right? 9 or 10, let's see. I'm looking through my Bible here. And the Holy Spirit comes on the people in Samaria, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues. And what we've said that is that this mini Pentecost takes place on four separate occasions, or three separate occasions. Once at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given. God confirms that the grace of God and the gospel power has gone out. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are witnesses to Jesus. And then Samaria and those half-Jews, they, are, they get the gospel. Peter preaches to them. The baptism falls, and they too 
speak in tongues. They too are, 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 are shown that there is, there is this unity. There's this connecting, this unifying theme that points them back to the original day of Pentecost. So what God is showing the people is what took place in Pentecost, that the gospel has come, the Holy Spirit promises come, people were filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing that happened in Samaria. Okay? It was connecting the dots for those people because at one point it was, it was a Jewish, it, it was birthed from Judaism. And what God was showing them is not just for the Jews. And we saw that. Another very important piece of information you need to know is in Acts chapter 7 and 8, we find Saul, the terrorist, persecuting Christians, dragging men and women out of their homes who were said, I'm a follower of Jesus. He would break in their house and take you out and persecute you. Some were put to death. Some were put in prison. And we saw how this Saul (laughs) comes to faith, really comes to fist of Jesus. He gets knocked off the horse. He comes face to face with the risen Christ. He goes from terrorist who hates Christians to lover of Christ because he came in contact with the living Christ. And we see now he's on fire for Jesus. All throughout Acts, Luke, the doctor, this historian mentions several times how the boldness of God's people through the prayers of God's people and ultimately through the work of the Holy Spirit was adding multitudes upon multitudes to Christ. Many people repenting from their sins and turning to Jesus. No surprise. Jesus said, I will build my church. Not I might, let's see how it works out. I will build my church and the gates of hell. Not even the powers of hell shall prevail against it. Then very importantly in Acts chapter 10, very pivotal pivotal place. An Italian cohort, a military man, a devout man, a God-fearer named Cornelius is praying Obviously not a Jew, but God was drawing him close to, him, to himself. And if you remember, Peter had this vision. A sheet came down, and there were animals on the sheet. And, and, and God says, kill and eat, Peter. Peter's like, no way. Those things are unclean in the Old Testament. And, and God steps in and goes, listen, three times he tells him, Peter, what God has made clean, do not call uncommon. God was telling Peter that because of Jesus, because of the work, the cleansing work of the cross, the old ceremonial laws about foods have been lifted, but more importantly, the barrier to the Gentile world has been removed. The gospel is to go out to all ethnic groups of the the people in the world. Then as the story goes, you know, Cornelius has his vision. He sends to Joppa a couple of guys. They pick up Peter. Peter comes back to the house. The family gets together. Now we have the Gentiles gathering Peter preaches the gospel, and as the gospel is being preached, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. Another mini Pentecost takes place. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and we see, again, a continuation of what God is doing. First with the Jews, then with the half-breeds, and then with the Gentiles. And the gospel is exploding. In different groups, God is making it very clear, very clear, by the, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, by the coming down on these groups of people, that it's not for Jews only, it's for everyone. Half-breeds, Full Gentiles. But it's really important, if you've got your Bibles open, Acts chapter 10, chapter 11, that you and I realize as we move forward in chapter 13 that at this point in the history of the church, the Jewish people have received the gospel. Some will reject it. We'll see that, but Pentecost. The Samaritans, the half-breeds, part Jew, 
had their own Bible, kept it. They, they usually, I think they used the, the five books of Moses. Everything else they rejected, but they still had the scripture. Then you have Cornelius, who was a God-fearer, who prayed to Yahweh, the one true God, but was a Gentile. And you see these people who were God-fearers come to faith in Jesus Christ. But when you get to chapter 11, things really change. We see in chapter 11 that because of Stephen's death and the subsequent persecution of Christians, many of the disciples traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. The church is now spreading. And the the perimeter and and the group of people starts to spread. Here in chapter 11, for the first time, you have straight-up Greek polytheists. They 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 love and worship multiple gods. There's no connection to Scripture. There's no connection to Yahweh. There's no connection to the covenant people of Israel. In the first time, if you look at chapter 11, at the end and the beginning of chapter 13, what you find is all these teachers at this church in Antioch, Syria, were very diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-class, multinational church had formed together in Antioch. I think that's why they call them, for the first time ever, Christians. Because there was no ethnic group to call them by. They were just a group of people, followers of Jesus, like, what do we call them? Them we know, them we know, and they all kind of had their different groups. And kind of, they're just conglomerate of all kinds of different, what do we call them? Let's call them Christians. All right, so at Antioch, they call them Christians. And this little church in Antioch that was situated on the Orontes River, 300 miles, uh, I think it's north of Jerusalem, east of the Mediterranean Sea, becomes this supporting mission house, this, this, this pillar church that sends Paul out into the world into all kinds of different cultures for the gospel. They become a missionary outpost to the word of God being preached and taught and the gospel of Jesus Christ going forward. This cosmopolitan city that had a, a melting pot of all kinds of cultures become this, this mega church. And I don't mean mega in size, mega in love, mega in mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, it had Asians in it, Africans, Romans, Jewish presence. And at this time, this is the time when we were in Acts. Alas, we looked at chapter 13 in the church of Antioch. I have a picture. It's not really that great, but I'll kind of explain it to you. Um, Here is Jerusalem, down here, Palestine. Okay, so you know where you are, Syria. Here is Antioch, the church that I'm talking about, right north of, it's in, actually was in Syria in that time, at that, at that day. So it's just north of Jerusalem. This is where Antioch is. Paul takes his first missionary journey, Acts chapter 13, if, you, if you're there, to Cyprus. All right, this is Africa, North Africa. This is the island of Cyprus. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 13, right in Cyprus. What we'll do, he'll go to another Antioch, which we'll talk about that in a minute. So this red line, he goes here, he goes here, and then he goes back up here, and then he comes back over here. So that's, that's his first missionary journey. That's, that's as far as he gets, which is, you know, this is not a plane. He didn't take a plane. All right, pick a cab didn't pick him up. Right, there's nobody waiting for him in a car. All right, he walked everywhere he went. All right, so... That, you know, that may not see. I mean, he didn't walk in the water. Don't get me wrong, okay? I don't mean like he walked over there. You know what I mean? When he hit land, he walked. Okay. So that's his, that's his first journey where we pick up at Acts chapter 13. Verse 2. It says, they were worshiping the Lord in this multi-ethnic church, and the Holy Spirit said, right, we got we to remember, we have to follow the Spirit. We don't own the Spirit. The Spirit owns us, okay? Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, who's Paul, for the work which I have called them. 
Then after fasting and praying, I want to make sure, man, this, this is God talking here. Let's fast and pray and make sure. They laid hands on them as to say, yes, we confirm what God is doing and sent them off. Seleucia, Cyprus, Salamis, they came uh, to, along with John Mark, which John, which is John Mark, we'll talk about him another day. They proclaimed the word, it says, in the synagogues throughout the whole island. They came across a certain magician, Bill Blake, uh, preached on that, a con man, a false Jewish prophet named Bar-Jebus, Bar-Jesus. Um, Paul rebukes him, calls him the devil, causes him to be blind. Pretty cool, since he was once blind and hoping that he comes to faith too. The proconsul, though, believed, and then Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and Perga in Pamphylia in Asia Minor, which brings us to our text this morning. Now, in order to get through this without interfering with dinner, we're going to do the whole chapter. Just four things I want to draw from this text. We're going to hit these themes uh, as time goes on as well throughout the book of Acts. But I want to draw four things around the text, this text, around this question. I have this question for you. Everybody wrap your head around this question. What would you say? What would you say about Jesus and the gospel if someone opened a giant door of, of an opportunity for you to speak? What would you say maybe to a neighbor, maybe, maybe a coworker, maybe someone you're in school with? What if that person asked you, what do you believe? Would you know what to say? Have you ever had that experience? You go to church. What's this about Jesus? What's, he, what's, what's different about him? What does your church teach? What does the Bible have to say? What if you're, and I hope you're praying for this opportunity to happen, and it does happen. It's happened to me. Before I was a pastor. People are like, yeah, well, you're a pastor. Everybody asks you that. No, not necessarily. What if you're having a barbecue this summer, and you're with your family, and you're with your neighbors, and religion comes up, Christianity comes up, and everybody does one of these looks at you. They know you go to church. They know you're a Christian. What would you say? What, what, what answer would you give them? What if someone said, what do you believe? Tell us what you believe. What do you, what do you think about this? That's Acts chapter 13. That's Acts chapter 13. That's exactly where we find the Apostle Paul. What would you say? Hopefully I'll give you some things to think about according to our text. Look at the setting. Verse 13. Now Paul, now, set sail from Paphos, that's the island, to Perga. It's in, um, East, uh, in, in Asia Minor. And John left them, it's John Mark, and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on to Perga and came to Antioch, which is in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, that Saturday, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogues sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, bring it. Now, Perga, we said, is located in southern uh, Asia Minor, uh, about 400 miles from Jerusalem. Antioch, Pisidia is about 100 miles as far as the crow flies. I think I should. I showed you where that was. Uh, the, the problem we're talking about Antioch is there were 16 of them. Some guy by the name of Seleucus Nicator, to honor his father, who he must really love and honor, his father's name was Antichius, named 16 regions Antioch. 
Sort of like George Foreman. How many kids he got? Like six sons? George the first, the second, the third, the fourth. Let's just name them all. So he, there are a lot of Antiochs. This one was north of that Antioch. And uh, this is where Paul finds himself. And he finds himself in a synagogue in a large Jewish population area. And he enters into the synagogue, obviously a, a great place of commonality for Paul. But as we will see, there are also very deep and profound differences as well. Now, the plural reference to synagogue rulers in verse 15, many commentators suggest that either it is the multitude or several synagogues had gotten together or it was a very big synagogue. Maybe, you know, with multiple rulers on it. And we find Paul in a very common practice getting into a city and entering into the synagogue first, partly because of theological reasons. The gospel would go to the Jew first. They have the oracle Oracle of God and, and, of course, Jesus being a Jew. He would go in to the synagogue and, practically speaking, it's where everybody gathered to hear the word of the Lord. It was the place where he would gather. They would go to hear the gospel being preached or at least the word of God being preached. They would open up their ceremony with the Shema, Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. There will be a reading after that from the Torah, one of the five books, the Pentateuch, one of the five books of Moses. Then a reading from the prophets. There would be a blessing and some prayer. And then some sort of expositional preaching, teaching. Why we do it here centerpiece of our, of our time together. Gathering is the preaching of the word of God. The band is awesome. Don't get me wrong. Love to sing. But we preach the word of God. We believe strongly in it and in its preaching. This is what Jesus did. Luke chapter 4. Jesus walks into the synagogue. Remember? They hand him a scroll. He opens up the scroll right to Isaiah. Chapter 61. And Jesus says, opens it up and says, and reads Isaiah 61, the Spirit, remember the New Testament wasn't written yet, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, Jesus talking, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering a sight to the blind to set a liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And of course, Jesus' sermon was done. The exposition, the explanation was very simple. Today, this scripture verse has been fulfilled in your midst. And he sat down. Some of you thinking, that's a short sermon. I thought about that. And I thought, if there's ever a verse that I can read and say that verse has been fulfilled in your midst, I'll sit down too. So, just so we're hoping together. When I get the Proverbs, I had to look one up. Proverbs 18, I'll be able to say. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinions. And I could say, the scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. (laughs) And I will sit down. Here we see the rulers must notice Paul was there. I don't know. He was a famous man. He was taught on the Gamaliel. So here they see him in the back and they tweet him. Paul. Brother, you got something to say? Man, we heard you're a scholar. You got something to say? What would you do? What would you do? What would you do in that circumstances? I don't think at the moment that the synagogue ruler said he's going to preach Christ. I think he just noticed he was a visitor. Maybe maybe words get around. That's Saul, taught on the Gamaliel, very famous rabbi. 
I don't think they had a clue. And if you're going to be honest and faithful to the scripture and to the gospel, if you have that opportunity, probably people are not going to expect what's going to come out of your mouth. In fact, what comes out of your mouth may have the same result. At the end, we will see what happened with Paul when he opened his mouth and he shared the gospel. But my question for you this morning is, are you prepared? I'm praying for everyone in this room that that happens to. That that incident and someone turns to you and says, what do you believe about God? What is your faith? What can you tell us about Jesus? Are you prepared? Are you prepared to speak on behalf of Christ and the gospel? Where would you begin? Would you begin with your testimony? Would you begin with Genesis? Would you begin talking about sin? What would you do? Where would you go? Would you only bring up the good parts? God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. True stuff. Not the gospel. Paul could have done that. But he doesn't. He gets to the place where he needs to go. I hope this is something that we can talk about in community groups this week. This has to do, the question that's before you and uh, me today has to do with a thing called contextualizing. The Apostle Paul knows his audience, and therefore he begins by addressing the, the Hebrews, the Jews, the God-fearers who are familiar with Scripture by retelling them a common story. He surveys, and he knows the story, verses 16 through 25. He talks about God's story. What, what you'll find out, what you'll find as you read the apostolic teaching and the preaching in the New Testament is that not everybody starts at the same place. Not everyone starts at the same spot when asked about the gospel. Peter in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost, he starts by explaining they're not drunk. I know they look drunk, they sound drunk, but they're not drunk. With, with, the, with the experience at the moment, that's where Peter starts. In Acts chapter 4, Peter's preaching to a crowd who were, at least some of them, were involved with the lynching and the murder and and the wanting of Jesus to be crucified. And he begins with saying, some of you put Jesus to to the cross. Chapter 7, Stephen starts with Abraham. Philip, running alongside the Ethiopian eunuch, starts where? In Isaiah. Makes sense. The guy's reading Isaiah and says, what does this mean? Well, let me take you to, you know, no, all right, let me explain what that means. Let me, let me tell you. In Athens, chapter 17, Paul starts his sermon with their religion. He walks into the city and he says, oh, I see you have, you know, these, these, these multiple worshiping, the polytheistic, they're, they're multiple gods, and, and he has this one statue to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. He talks about their poets, and he shares right from where they are. What we see over and over again is the preaching and the sharing of Christ beginning in different places, but always, always with the trajectory of getting to the place of preaching Christ, of preaching the gospel. Same ending to Christ. All this to say that culturally appropriate evangelism should always answer the actual questions being asked of that culture rather than the questions that you are stuck in or that you think they should be asking. It's called contextualization. It comes from the word contextualize, which means, obviously, the word context, to put things in place, explain the truth and cry of Christ in a particular context, in a particular culture. Foreign missionaries 
foreign, we call them global partners. I'll tell you why in a minute. I've been doing this for years, for centuries, for centuries. They learn about the culture, and then they look for ways to bridge the gospel, the truth of Christ, to that particular group of people. So a missionary, therefore, is someone who takes the unchanging gospel, I'm not saying change the gospel, and look to incarnate it in the culture for the cause of Christ by understanding people, by learning the culture, by asking the questions of the culture, learning the questions of the culture, and understanding people's worldview. Where are you at? Missionaries, you and I, Christians, are all missionaries. We are proclaimers, witnesses of the unchanging truth of the gospel of scripture in a changing cultural context. We call ourselves a missional church. Missional church means that we are a community of followers of Jesus Christ who function in the place God puts us as missionaries. That's what we do. Recognizing that we should live our lives in all the different spheres of our lives, whether it's on a soccer field or whether it's on a, uh, at our job, whether it's in our school, we, we function as missionaries looking for ways to tell people, to love people, and point them to Jesus Christ. But here's the deal, folks. We must be willing to love people where they are. We must be willing to love people where they are. We've got to know them. We've got to know their struggles. We should know their joys, their fears, their dreams, their worldviews, so that we can look for ways and avenues to, to share with them the good news, the unchanging news of Jesus Christ. And people say, well, you know, how far do I go? Don't sin. I don't know how else you know, I can explain that. Jesus went to parties. He wasn't the drunk guy with the... With the you know, lampshade on his head. That's too far. Right? I'm not smoking crack for the glory of Christ so I could share with crackhead, crack people, you know, people who smoke crack and use drugs. I was there. I, I'm not going to a strip joint so that that girl who's dancing needs to hear about Jesus. Okay, let's not get, let's use common sense. But you know what? If I have an opportunity to hear their heart, to love them, to serve them, without sinning, do we kick them to the curb and just say, you know what, you're not like me. You live a lifestyle that's gross. I don't want nothing to do with you. No, not missionaries. Missionaries are looking for opportunities. Always looking, loving, and pointing people to Jesus. Paul begins his sermon on a very common ground. Verse 16, men of Israel, and all you who fear God, listen. The God of his people Israel chose our fathers our fathers, and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Verse 18, and for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took place for 450 years, about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet, verse 21. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. He's connecting with him. Verse 22, and when he had removed them, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, God talking, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. All this man's, of this man's offspring, that's David, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, just as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, when it was time for him to go, he said, what? Do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, 
But behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to tie. What Paul does is recount the history of God's people through the patriarchs all the way through John the Baptist. He goes through the Exodus. He goes through the wandering uh, uh, of the wilderness. He goes through into Canaan. He talks about the judges. He talks about the prophet, both kings, King Saul and King David, and the promise that God made to King David. We see that all over Scripture. 2 Samuel, Psalm 89 says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever. I will build your throne for all generations, pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And then he takes it right to John the Baptist. And the humility of John, you see that. He mentions it because John's not the center of the story. God is. He keeps saying over and over. One of the things that you'll read as you read this, uh, hopefully you will this week, in the surveys of, of, history, of Israel, is that it is ultimately God's story. God did this. God did that. God braised this one up. God took this one down. Everything is about what God did. Faithful Jews were waiting for the Messiah. They govern their lives, their festivals, their, their gatherings, their synagogues, their celebration with this sense of eager hope that God's glory would manifest himself through the coming of the Messiah. There was no maverick singled out one story. Jews, faithful Jews, did not run around creating their own reality. They knew that they were a part of his story. Faithful Jews saw the significance of their lives as a people. Had value if it was with the hope of the main story, God's story, the Messiah coming. They expected it. They were waiting for it. This is what God was going to do. You see, the gospel is really not about you or me. It's sort of like if someone asked you to give a history lesson on America and as you were sharing the stories and the different things, maybe you go back to independence, whatever you want to do, and each, each major event in the history of America, you intervened and said something about your family tree. You know, you get to 9-11 and you say, on that day, boy, I cooked this really good, you know, prime rib. Or, you know, my, my son had his first baseball game. You'd be like, really? See, it's, it's about the biggest story. We think sometimes that it's all about me, but it's really, it's our personal story, but really our collective stories are rooted in the story of God. It's bigger than us. I want you to see that this morning. It's bigger than us. Your story, my story, I I want you to see this, is wrapped up in the story that God began in Genesis. Acts, the book of Acts, is the continuation of God's story we pick up at the end of Acts, and now we are grafted in to a much greater story than just you and Glenmont. It's the story of God. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of God redeeming his people to himself. It's much bigger than us. And our stories will only have meaning if it's connected to something greater than our lives. And as we eagerly see ourselves as part of his story unfolding in our lives, in our churches, wow, we can, we can come together and be excited, roll up our sleeves, and join God, the creator, in his work. 
setting, know your audience. We did a survey, know your story. And third is, you've got to know the Savior. Verses 26 and following. Paul begins in verse 23, identifying the stories. The, the promise of the whole story is Jesus himself. Verse 23. When Paul uh, preaches and reaches to David, uh, reaches from David to John the Baptist, he jumps a thousand years and he points to the forerunner of Jesus, who is John the Baptist. John was pointing the way through the baptism of repentance and preparing the way for the Lord to come. He's the bridge that Paul takes between the promise and realization of that promise. He's the last link in Israel's history before the Messiah was to come. We must never get to the place of contextualizing, hearing stories, contextualizing, but never get to Christ. We've got to get to Jesus. The hard things must be said in order for the gospel and its entirety to be shared. Calling people to repentance of sin. We just can't tell people God loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. God cares for you. All those things are true. But it cannot be obtained simply intellectually. There's uh, returning from sin. Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, very clearly, when he came preaching the gospel, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There must be a call to repent and to believe on Jesus Christ. Verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Greatest need that you have, the greatest need that I have, is a Savior. A Savior who delivers us from sin, forgiveness of sin, and death and hell. Now, the three major movements, we'll just mention them here, that Paul talks about this Savior, Jesus Christ. Number one, his sinless life, verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which we read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. The sinless, spotless, no guilt, no guile, Savior. A couple of weeks ago, Ricky and I were at a conference in uh, Louisville. If you guys could open up some of the windows on the side, that would be great for me. Um, I'm sure some of you are warm as well. We were at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and John Piper was the, was the ending speaker. Nine sermons, I think nine hours worth of preaching. It was great. I could have done another five. Um, and he spoke about being broken over the lost, over those who don't know Christ. And he says it begins, this brokenness begins by recognizing that we were snatched, we were grasped from this sea of, of destruction. It begins with understanding that the gift of salvation, the, the work of Christ on our behalf, is that, a gift, a gift of grace. We're not righteous, he is righteous. He is sinless, we are sinful. And that must be communicated, as I thought about that, humbly, humbly, in such a way that we've been broken by it. It wasn't simply the Jewish people, the Romans, the crowd that put Jesus on the cross. It was your sin, it was my sin, it was my shame, my folly, my, my, my brokenness, my rebellion that ultimately put Jesus on the cross. And he said this, and I'm sure Ricky will remember this, and as only Piper can say it. He says, the next time you're sitting across from an unbeliever and they're willing to hear the best news ever and you've gone through all the factual things you need to talk about concerning the life and the work of Christ, he says, lean over, look at them right in the eye and say, I want you. I want you. I want you as a brother. I want you as a sister. 
He said that person may have never, ever seen anyone with tears in their eyes saying, I want you to enjoy God, to enjoy eternal life with me. And I thought about that. It can't come from a self-righteous, pious, uppity attitude, but only through a brokenness of your own sin and the perfectness of Christ and the recognizing and the realization that that's what God said to you, I want you. The Bible says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we've been saved by grace. He's spotless. We're broken. Never get to that self-righteous place. Secondly, not only sinlessness of Christ, but it's the fulfillment of Christ. Actually, fulfillment is so pictured in this theme together. But look at verse 28. He said, the prophets are read every Sabbath. The word of God is being preached, verse 29. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. They speak about him all the time. He's constantly being, but you don't see it. Paul's saying the word of God, the prophecies about the Messiah have been read, and even though you didn't understand that, by crucifying, you fulfilled them. The scriptures predict and fulfill his condemnation, his crucifixion, his death on a tree is actually an allusion to Deuteronomy 21, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The burial all a fulfillment of Christ. This is not something that somebody found, dug in the ground and pulled out coins. This is something that has been prophesied and proclaimed for centuries and thousands of years. This didn't drop out of heaven. I think sometimes we give people the impression that Jesus just showed up on the scene. It was predicted, it was promised, it was fulfilled. And in the right time, Galatians says, God sent forth his son. Lastly, we see in this speech about Jesus. He was raised from the dead, verse 30. All that took place was fulfilled. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers promise singular i'll get to that this is fulfilled to us their children by raising jesus as also it is written in the second psalm you are my son today i've begotten thee verse 34 and as far as and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption he has spoken in this way i will give you the holy and sure blessings of david therefore he also said another psalm you will not let your holy one see corruption Paul mentions Psalm 2, a messianic and royal psalm. He mentions Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. He mentions Psalm 16 that Jesus said he would not let the Holy One see corruption. So the Jewish leaders, the Pilate, and all those people put Jesus to death, as the Bible says, is a predetermined foreknowledge plan of God, but also God raised him from the dead. This was God's divine act. Divine act of vindication showing exactly where God stood on his son. This Christ, listen, this Christ is the begotten son, the blessed son, the incorruptible son. He is the holy son. His post-resurrection says that they, they saw him and they were witnesses. But not only that, but the scriptures. Not only that, the scriptures testify to this truth. Paul says the promise back in verse 32, it's singular. It was the promise that was made to David. 
Verse 33 has been fulfilled. It's in the uh, present uh, perfect tense, meaning it's been done and it continues out in the state of doneness, if I can use that word. Okay, that's what he's saying. It will always be. Now, please don't misunderstand the scripture. When it says today you have become my son, Today I have begotten you. It is not that Jesus it was a created being or that somehow he was not the son until after his resurrection. That's not what it means. In the context, the sonship of Christ was vindicated by the resurrection. It validates what he said. It vindicates what he did. Basically saying as God raised Jesus from the dead, God the Father placed his approval on Christ's work of suffering and his death and resurrection from the cross. It's not becoming a son. It's not being adopted as a son. And let me tell you, as we move on, the last person in the world to believe that Jesus Christ is God to be worshipped was the Apostle Paul. The last one. Jew knew the Ten Commandments, knew that if he worshipped any other God, he would go to hell forever. And yet, worship Jesus. He was taught since he was this big that God is so transcendent, he could never become a man. Even the Greek philosophers of that day taught that God can, you know, that God's come down, but not like this. Not like this. The only thing that made Paul realize that he is the uncorruptible, eternal son was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Jews believed, because Daniel spoke about a resurrection at the end. Daniel speaks about the, the, the final resurrection when the resurrection, they believed in a resurrection, but at the end, not in the middle of time. Not Paul, not the Jews. The only thing that turned Paul from murdering Christians to worshiping Jesus is because he came face to face with the risen Christ and his worldview completely changed. And finally, we get to the stir. Track with me a few more minutes. What is so interesting here is that Paul describes the Savior in this text. He talks about Jesus, his sinlessness, his perfection, his glory, his power, and he points to Jesus, the Christ, the the one who will not see death, the one who is raised, the one who is holy, the one who is is, uh, uh, risen from the dead, and then he points to their sin. Sometimes we do it differently, don't we? I don't think there's any right way to do it. Sometimes we go right to sin. But for Paul, this occasion, he says, this is the Savior. This is the promise. This is fulfillment. And now let's talk about something. Let's talk about your sin. Let's talk about your sin. You know, every good sermon, every good teaching, every good book, every good conversation eventually gets to Jesus. Because he's the most important issue, right? He surveyed the history, the promises, but then is a call to repentance and turning from sin. Verse 38, let it be known. Brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Feel that. That's in the synagogue. This is not the Jesus of your imagination. He's not the God of your women. He's not the genie in the sky. This is the one who can forgive sins, who is, when believed on, sets you free. Something the law of Moses could never do. Now the ESV, if you have an ESV, the footnote says the word um, freed is the word for justification. Dakayao, it's a legal forensic to be made righteous. It's, it's the act of God declaring a sinner 
righteous, forgiven, and in a right relationship with himself? It's a courtroom picture. God the judge declaring righteous, forgiven, freed, not guilty. The NLT translation, I picked this up this week. Listen to what it says. It translates this verse. Everyone who believes in Jesus is freed from all guilt and declared right with God. That's a great, that's a great translation. Freed from guilt and declared right with God. Luther called it alien righteousness. It's not our own. It's been given to us because of Christ's perfect righteousness. Think for a moment. Think for a moment with me. The stress, anxiety that you would know, that you would feel in your soul if keeping God's law, the law of Moses, perfectly, the moral perfections of his law perfectly as your pathway to acceptance and freedom from guilt and maybe right with God. That's a lot. Undoable. Undoable. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The forgiveness Jesus sets us free from is the removal of sin, the freedom from our guilt, and the legal obligation that was before us. Listen, you can't be set free because your parents believe, kids. You can't be set free from your sins, from the guilt of your sins, from the punishment of your sins because your parents believed. You cannot be set free from your sins because you yesterday helped a little old lady cross the street. You can't be forgiven and freed from your sins because you drink bottled water and recycle your plastics. Okay? You cannot be free from sin because my, out, my good outweighs my bad. Right? We do that scale. If you wanted that scale analogy, let me give you a right one. Here's your goodness, and here's Christ's perfect righteousness. Okay? That's the scale of judgment. Not my good and my bad. The righteousness, the perfection that God requires that Jesus fulfilled and all your stuff. The only way to be freed from guilt, the scripture says right here, meaning the man's of God's law is through Christ, his perfect, sinless, obedient life. That's the only way. You and I need a savior. We need righteousness, but it's not our own. It's a righteousness that Christ gives us. That's the heart of the gospel. Hinduism, Islam, Buddha, conservatism, liberalism, capitalism won't save you. Jesus Christ saves you alone. Jesus Christ alone will save you. His perfect life, his righteous life. He was the one predicted and promised. He was the one handed over and crucified. He's the one that rose victorious over sin, death, and hell. And by repentance and faith in him, the work of the eternal son, the justification that we need, the forgiveness, the freedom we need that makes us right with God comes through grace by faith in Christ alone. And then verse 40 gives him a warning. And and this warning goes to us. Comes from Abaca. Beware. King Chapel, family, beware, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, he astonished and perished. Am I doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if someone tells you? That's the prophet saying, look, Babylon's coming. You should heed the word of God. And then in closing, verse 42, we look at the two responses. I'll read this to the end of the text. As they went out, he says, the people begged that these my things might be told to them again the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. 
the next Sabbath, the next Saturday, almost the whole city got together to hear, listen, the word of the Lord. We'll see that five times. To hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke up boldly saying, listen, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. Isaiah 49 he's talking about. That you might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48 in closing. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. Some rejected, some hated, some were jealous, and some rejoicing. Rejoicing and glorifying what? The word of the Lord, the promise of God, the fulfillment of God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standings and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against them. Paul and Barnabas drove them out. They drove them out of the district, verse 51. Shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples, what? Filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. Awesome. The positive reception and negative reception. They were reviling, they were slandering him. And he says, yet those who have been appointed, ordained is the word, to eternal life believe. A clear reference to the providence and the God's sovereignty in the work of salvation. The passive voice indicates that God is the one who assigns those to eternal life. It is about the sovereignty of God and the work of God that drove Paul to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, get beat up and stoned, knowing that God has done work. And now I must go and share the gospel with every living creature. Just as God worked in the major events in Jerusalem, God is working the salvation of the Gentiles, bringing people to himself. The disciples, at the very last sentence, what a beautiful thing it says. The disciples are filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. The verb is imperfect, an ongoing joy, filled with the Spirit, filled with joy. Notice it doesn't say anything about speaking in tongues. They were filled with the Spirit, and they were filled with joy. Talk about the fruit of the Spirit. They were filled with the joy. What a great sign, the human heart. The Word of God is being preached. The Word of God is being spread. The Word of God is being declared. The Word of God is being received. People's sins are being forgiven. They're coming to faith. And the disciples are what? Filled with joy and love in the Holy Spirit. That's awesome. What a way to end. The whole region, much joy. So, what would you say? What would you say? What if the floor was open to you? Would you say, come and trust Jesus? Because you know your sin. You know you fall short. You know there's guilt. You know that you want to be right with God. Come and trust Jesus. Trust him. Trust him. No matter what moral perfection you think you have, it's in filthy rags before God. Trust Christ and his righteousness. Trust him because his word has been fulfilled. It's been taught for thousands of years. God himself will redeem you. God will self gave his life for you in Jesus Christ. Trust him because he rose three days victorious over sin, death, and hell. Trust him. That's all you can do. I want you with me. Be prepared, family. We're praying that God opens that door. And if you've never heard about Jesus, all those things are true. He's sinless. You're not. He's fulfilled Old Testament promises. You did not. He was murdered and crucified and, 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 and died for our sins and rose over sin, death, and hell. He's the only way to salvation. You must turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. 
I say that not as a self-pious person, but someone who is very sinful, needed a lot of cleansing and washing, and still do, repenting of sin regularly. Come to Jesus. He wants you. He loves you. He died for you. Do you know Christ? Are you prepared to answer the question? Where would you begin? I'm praying that God will show you and use you mightily to tell others about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are a people that are totally dependent on your grace and your mercy for us. Lord, may we never get to the place where we think we are better than anyone else. All of us come the same way. We may have different stories. We may have different uh, avenues in which we came, but we all came to the foot of the cross where we looked up and saw a Savior who died as a punishment for our sins, a debt that we owed. And then we went to the empty tomb and we saw his resurrection from the grave, victorious over sin, over death, over hell. Father, I want to ask you now to send your spirit that you would teach us and you would show us and you would give us opportunities to love people where they are, to care for them where they are, and then bring that conversation around delicately, lovingly, even with tears in our eyes. Come to Jesus. I want you with us. I want you with me. Father, help us to do that. And if there's a heart here today that hasn't settled that fact, Lord, I pray your spirit would show them the truth. Jesus Christ is alive and well, victorious over sin, and wants them. May their hearts turn to him in complete trust in the work of Christ. Father, help us to respond appropriately and honorably for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' good name, amen.